for all of us now, if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Habakkuk. That is on page 785 on the Bibles underneath the sheet, uh, underneath the seat in front of you. There we go. Uh, we are in part four of our series through the book of Habakkuk, and the series is called The Ever-Present King. And we've entitled this message, An Ever-Present King. I'm not very creative. Um, But there's a serious point to this series, and there's a serious point to this sermon, and that is that we serve an ever-present King. That God is present. That when we can feel Him, He's present. When He feels distant, He is present. When everything is going great in our lives, He is present. And even in moments where we can't seem to find our way, He is present. Our God is an ever-present King. And as we get going this morning, a quick story for you. I've got two little boys, Matthew, who's six, and Joey, who's four. Love those kids. And uh, just the way kind of our family rhythm works, I I pick them up from school on Thursday afternoons. That's what I do. I leave work a little bit early. I pick them up on Thursdays. And if we don't have a medical appointment or or chores to attend to or something like that, we try to go find something fun to do after school, which over the wintertime usually means going to kind of one of the indoor parks in the area. And now that the weather has gotten nicer, we've started to explore uh, some of the many uh, wonderful outdoor parks that we've got kind of in our community. And so not this, this last Thursday, but the Thursday before, I picked my boys up from school, and we went to one of the larger parks in the area. And we drive in, we park the car, we get out, we walk up, and, and I release them as if they were waiting for my release to run up and go start playing and doing what they do. And I just kind of sat on one of the retaining walls and I'm watching and I'm observing what go, what's going on, sort of, you know, like you do. And my oldest, Matthew, would come back to me every couple of minutes and give me a report of what was going on, right? Like, Daddy, I just slid down that slide. Daddy, I just did the monkey bars. Daddy, I did this. And of course, I'm encouraging him. Wow, that's great, buddy. I'm watching you. Way to go. That's fantastic. Cool. And he would go on his way and he would continue doing what he was doing. Well, after a little while of that, I, in a real dad-of-the-year move, start paying attention to my other son, and I see what he's doing. And my younger son's a little more rough and tumble, if you know, any of your parents who have you know, one of those. And I, I walk over to him, and I'm watching what he's doing, and I'm helping him kind of climb and you know, not die, and just that sort of thing. And I'm paying attention to what he's doing, and I sort of get absorbed in that moment for, for a minute. And then, and then before long, I turn back, and I look back to where I was sitting. And what do I see? But my oldest, having a full-on, oh my gosh, my father has abandoned me, I'm alone in the world, meltdown. Ah! So I go back, and I pick him up, and we sit there, and I, I tell him something I've told him many times before, which is, buddy, you have to remember, when we're out somewhere, I'm never just going to leave you. I would never just leave and leave you by yourself at the park or any place else. I'm always there. So if you can't see me, that doesn't mean I've left. I'm around. Maybe you just can't see me, but I'm right there. And, you know, we talked through it. And then, you know, just in case I had him practice my phone number, just, you know, not a bad thing for him to have that information. And then we went on with our day. But how often are we like my son when it comes to God? How often in our lives shifting circumstances or uncertainty causes us to forget the loving care of our Heavenly Father? Things go wrong and all of a sudden it's like, God, you've abandoned me. God, what's happened? And we start freaking out just like my son did at the park. 
It's a reality of our lives. And because that is true, because that tendency exists in me and in you, we need to be reminded of the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you this morning, the fill in the blank on your bulletin, and it's this. God is still on the throne. God is still on the throne. It's as simple as that. God is still ruling and reigning. He always has been, he is today, and he always will be. Now, Pastor Lance has been joking throughout the first few parts of this series that Habakkuk is not exactly one of the best-known books of the Bible. I would, I would be willing to bet if I were a gambler that for most, if not all of us, this is the first time you've ever been through a preaching series in the book of Habakkuk, right? But even though it is not well known, the timelessness of this book is profound. What do I mean by that? I mean that on the one hand, Habakkuk was written in a particular time for a particular group of people for a particular purpose to make some very particular points. But the struggles... The challenges, the doubts, the concerns, the worries, so many of the themes of this book are highly translatable to other times and places, including our own. I mean, all of Habakkuk 1 is essentially just complaining. It's Habakkuk complaining. Now, granted, he has pretty good reason to complain. If you're new to Bridgeway or maybe you've missed the first few weeks of the series... The book of Habakkuk starts with him lashing out at God for the terrible state that Israel is in. He's saying, God, our leaders are corrupt. There's all sorts of false worship going on. Why don't you do something about it? And I'm obviously paraphrasing here. And then God says back to Habakkuk, well, actually, funny you should mention that, because I actually am going to do something about it. You know the Chaldeans, right? That violent, warlike civilization not far from you? Yeah, yeah, I've heard of them. Well, I've actually decided I'm going to raise them up to come in and conquer you and destroy you all. And Habakkuk says, fantastic. No, he says, wait a second. The Babylonians are going to come conquer us? First of all, that's not exactly what I had in mind. Second of all, come on now, God, the Babylonians, you've got to be kidding me, they're even more wicked than we are. Having the Babylonians conquer us doesn't exactly solve the wickedness problem. He's essentially saying, God, what the heck? God, what are you doing? God, I think you owe me an explanation because what you're doing's not fair. How many of us have ever prayed a prayer like that? And what happens... At the beginning of chapter 2, Habakkuk says this, verse 1. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. God, he says, I'm here and I'm listening and I'm not going anywhere until you respond to me. In fact, for him to say, I'm taking my stand on my watch post. Anybody reading this in his time would know exactly what that meant. What that meant was he was neglecting any and all earthly concerns so that he could focus entirely on hearing from God. He's saying, God, I'm calling you out, and I'm not going anywhere until you give me an answer, until you give me an explanation. Here's what Habakkuk kind of reminds me of in this moment. When I was a young kid, I really looked forward to having dessert after dinner. I mean, I'm not going to lie. As an adult, I sort of look forward to dessert after dinner. I mean, who doesn't like dessert? 
But as a kid, I really looked forward to it. And we didn't have dessert in my house every night, but it was a fairly common occurrence. But every once in a while, I would lose my dessert because I had mouthed off or I hadn't finished my dinner or something like that. And when you're eight years old, having your dessert taken away is basically the pinnacle of injustice. Right? Like there's nothing worse that could happen to you than to have your dessert taken away. So I would be sort of stewing on this once that punishment had been handed down. And then I would be eventually sent off to bed without dessert. And I would just be in my room just fuming over this injustice that has been perpetrated upon me. And I would be laying there and I would think to myself, I've been sent to bed without dessert. This cannot happen. I will not stand for this injustice. They must pay for their crimes. And this is what I did on a couple of occasions, and what I'm about to tell you is 100% true, is I would actually get out a piece of paper and find like a marker or a crayon or something, and I would write on it something to this effect. I would write something like, I did not get my dessert. I do not go to sleep on nights that I do not get my dessert. And I would go find my parents, whatever room of the house they were in, and I would like sneak up to the edge of the room, and I would like push the paper in there just far enough so that they would see it, but so they wouldn't see me like I'm all sneaky or something. And then I would run back to my room, and I would sit there all indignantly, sitting up in my bed because I'm not going to sleep because I did not get my dessert. Now, I don't know what I expected to happen in that situation. Like, were my parents going to like stop with it? Oh, my gosh, we have this note. Oh, it's from our child. He didn't get dessert. Oh, my, check the freezer. What do we have? Like, ice cream, popsicle. We just got to get him something. You know what? Forget it. Get in the car. We're going to Leatherby's. Like, this has got to be solved, right? Like, what did I expect to happen in that situation? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what did happen in that situation. I sat up in my bed for about 20 or 30 minutes. And then I went to sleep (laughs) without dessert. And listen, expecting anything different, I mean, the whole plan is sort of the product of eight-year-old foolishness, right? I mean, I had no right to make that demand upon my parents, and I certainly had no right to expect any response other than the response I got, which was nothing, right? It was a ridiculous and inappropriate demand. I feel like Habakkuk's situation is kind of like that. Habakkuk is not a kid, but he's not just talking to his parents. Habakkuk is making these demands to the God of the universe. But the crazy thing is, God responds. God responds. And that's where we pick up our story. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision... Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So God says, you want to know what's going on? Fine. I can accommodate that that request. And he begins to speak. And again, In this moment, there is a particular message that God delivers to Habakkuk that was for Israel in that time and place. And we're going to talk about what that is. But there's also an awful lot in this just short little passage, these three verses, 
for us to understand about how God communicates to us and how we are to understand God's activity in the world. He first of all says, Habakkuk, you're going to want to write this down. Write the vision. Make it plain on the tablets. The idea behind that was Habakkuk was supposed to take what God said. He was supposed to make sure he wrote it nice and big and nice and clear. I'm writing my own name right now. Write it nice and big. So that then professional heralds and messengers could take the message and could go spread it around and it would be clear. That was the idea, saying, Habakkuk, make this clear so that people can understand it. Now, for you and I today, we don't have to rely on messengers and clear handwriting to understand God's word. We've got our nice printed Bibles. But this point that God is making to Habakkuk reflects just a a broader point, which is that God's heart is that we would understand his word. God's heart is that his people would understand his word. God does not simply want preachers and teachers and Bible college students to understand his word. God wants all of us who belong to him to understand his word. God longs that we, like David, would be able to say, like he does in Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart. God wants us to know his word. We we as a church, we want to be people who know God's word. That's why we say in our identity statement, in our our understanding of who we are, we say we are a scripture-soaked, spirit-led community. We want to be soaked in the scriptures. We want to know God's word. God, God, God gives us his word, and his invitation to us is to know it. His invitation to us is to know it. And listen, in knowing it, The point is not to master it. The point is to be mastered by it. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because listen, I've known too many people in my life who would be brilliant at Bible trivia challenge, but who were also jerks. Something is missing in that equation, right? The point is not simply to master it. The point is to be mastered by it. The point is to see Jesus in it and have his spirit transform us. There is, there is endless detail to be studied in God's word, but the basics are meant to be simple. The basics are meant to be simple. In the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about the importance of growing in spiritual maturity, growing in our wisdom and understanding. And he says that this is necessary, that it's ne- this sort of growth and understanding, this sort of knowledge of God is important because... We need to do this, quote, starting in verse 14 of chapter 4, so that we, no long, we, may, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. If you and I don't know God's word, if you and I are not anchored in God's word, we are prone to be figuratively tossed to and fro by the waves of culture, by the waves of politics and the like. We're prone to be conformed to the patterns of this world, which Romans 12.2 warns against. We're at the risk of being deceived by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And make no mistake about it, craftiness and deceit exists in our culture, but it is difficult to spot. Why? That's the whole point of being crafty, is it's difficult to spot. But instead 
of being deceived by those things, instead of being ignorant of the truth, we are invited, Ephesians says, to speak the truth in love. And, and listen, when the Bible tells us to speak the truth in love, it's not saying what we think it's saying. It's not saying that you need to say to somebody, hey, listen, um, I love you and I am for you, but your breath is terrible. You might need to say that. I'm not saying don't say that. You'd be doing them a favor, frankly. I'm not saying don't say that, but I'm saying that is not what the Bible means when it says speak the truth in love. We're invited to speak the truth in love, and the truth is the gospel. The truth is the beautiful reality of God's reconciliation of all things through Christ. The truth is that Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ will come again. And because of that, there is hope for us. The truth is the gospel which we're able to begin to apply to each and every area of our lives. And we're invited to speak it in love. And when you and I, in community with one another, are speaking the gospel to one another, when we're helping one another apply the gospel to different areas of our lives, to our relationships and to our work and to even our relationship with God, we grow. When we speak the truth in love, we grow in Christ. We're not deceived by what is false. We're not fooled by the attacks of the enemy because we're rooted in what is true. But if we're going to speak the truth, we have to know the truth. We cannot speak what we do not know. We cannot live what we do not know. God's heart for us is that we would understand his word. And again, you can spend a lifetime understanding the nuances of this book. But the basics are meant to be simple. The basic truths of the gospel are meant to be simple. And I, I heard someone say recently that you must understand something deeply to explain it simply. And man, I just thought, I, I long to be the sort of person, I long for us to be the sort, a church full of people who understand God's word deeply so that we can explain it simply when the time comes. Amen? So God says to Habakkuk, write it down, make it plain. And the purpose of this writing is also to make it permanent. Do you realize Habakkuk is about to receive a prophecy that he would not see entirely fulfilled in his lifetime. He is going to receive a prophecy that he is not going to see entirely fulfilled in his lifetime. This wasn't a promise for the moment. This was a promise for future generations. And God was saying, Habakkuk, I need you to write this down so that when future generations see these promises fulfilled, they can look back and see my faithful hand guiding them through. See, I think it's easy to forget that God works on a very different time schedule than the rest of us, right? Like you and I, we get so hung up in the present that we can't even think coherently about the future. Like if you're anything like me, like if you come up to me and ask, like, hey, Brian, what do you got going on two months from now on a Thursday? And I'd say, I don't know. Like, I'm still trying to figure out this afternoon, all right? But God works on a very different time schedule. God sets plans in motion that aren't entirely fulfilled for decades or even centuries. We might feel haphazard. We might feel like what's going on in our lives is haphazard. We might even look out into the world and think, gosh, this all feels very random and haphazard, but we can trust on the authority of the word of God that it is not haphazard, that God has a plan, that God works things out differently than we do, that God works on a different time schedule than we do. So God says, write it down, make it permanent, 
Make it permanent so that my people can see it in the future. And then he says, the vision awaits its appointed time. This is language we see other places in the Bible as well. In Daniel chapter 10, a messenger from heaven uh, says that you're going to receive a vision that is for days yet to come. Once again, God is giving his prophets visions for the future. And again, as he orchestrates history, we have to understand, as God puts history together, he is operating on a plane that is entirely different from our own. But God has a very orderly sense of time. We even see this in the life of Jesus, that Jesus, his life and his ministry was not random, but rather there, that time, specific moments in time, were important to his ministry. At the very beginning of his public ministry in Mark chapter 1, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, this is the moment. This is the moment that has been planned for all eternity for me to go public. This is the time. And then later on in John chapter 7, Jesus is being pressured to perform a particular sign. And he says simply, listen, my time has not yet come. Like you've got your agendas, you've got your way you want this to work, but my time for this particular sort of ministry has not yet come. And that's just a few examples of many. What's the point? When he was on earth, Jesus had a very intentional approach to time. God has a very intentional approach to time as he rules the universe. It's important for us to understand, as Psalm 90 tells us, that for God, a thousand years are but as yesterday. We get so hung up in the present, God takes a long view. Habakkuk goes on, For the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. Think about this for a second. Why do you think God needed to tell Habakkuk, I will not lie. I am not going to lie to you in what I'm about to say. Why do you think he would have to say that? Well, let me ask a different question. A moment ago, when I was telling you that ridiculous story of my righteous indignation of not getting dessert, why did I pause in the middle of that story to say, what I'm about to tell you is 100% true? The reason I did that is because I was about to tell you something ridiculous. And it would not have been unreasonable for you to hear that and say, well, you know how those pastors get with their stories. He's got to be embellishing this. I don't embellish stories. It would be reasonable for you to think, I don't know if I quite buy that. If I was telling you a story where I said, well, you know, this morning I woke up and I had breakfast, I wouldn't have to be like, guys, I'm telling you the truth. I had breakfast this morning. Like, sure, you're a human being. We would expect that. Like, there's nothing unusual there. Why is God saying, I will not lie? Because he's about to give him a prophecy that's not going to come true for a while. And there's going to be some intermediate time there where it's going to maybe look like he lied. It's going to maybe look like he lied. They're going to have reason to doubt. He's saying to Habakkuk, listen, Habakkuk, I'm about to give you a vision, but you need to understand the bad guys are coming and it's not going to go well for you. And there are going to be some very dark days in front of you and you're going to have reason to shake your fist at the heavens. You're going to have reason to doubt my loving care. You're going to have reason to wonder, did God even tell the truth? And I need you to know, I do not lie. And listen, on some level, that's kind of the story of our faith, isn't it? Like God working through seemingly impossible situations to bring about good for his kingdom. God working through situations where we can say, really, God, are you going to are you really going to fulfill that promise? And then God doing it. You think all the way back to the book of Genesis, where God says to 
Abraham, who at the time was called Abram, who was 90-some years old and had no kids. He says to him, listen, I know you're 90-some years old and you have no kids, but I'm going to raise a great nation up through you. And Abraham's like, sure you are. Or you think about the book of Exodus, where, where God goes to a murderer on the run who had a stuttering problem named Moses and says, listen, I have heard the cry of my people and I'm going to use you to set my people free. And Moses is like, I think you've got the wrong Moses. Like, that's not going to happen. Or what about a Friday on a hill outside of Jerusalem where the Savior of the world hung dead on a cross? The one who spoke of the coming kingdom of God, executed, despised, rejected like a common criminal. Didn't it look in that moment... Like, maybe God lied. Maybe God wasn't going to keep his promise. But we know in all three of those cases that that is not the end of the story. That God did raise up a mighty nation through Abraham. That God did raise up Moses to go stand before Pharaoh and say, let my people go and God's people were free. And most of all, we know that the tomb where they lay Jesus is empty. So you and I, we get so hung up on these situations like, oh my gosh, it's hopeless. God, this is never going to work out. God, your promises aren't going to be true. And God's saying, Listen, I'm still on the throne. The game's not over yet. I'm still working. You might think this is hopeless, but it's not hopeless to me. I do not lie. I will accomplish my purposes and nothing will stand in my way. Do you need to remember that today? Do you need to remember that today? And in a sense... In a sense, we still are kind of living in the tension that Habakkuk was living in. We've seen the fulfillment of all of those other promises I just alluded to, but we're kind of still living in the tension because we're awaiting the fulfillment of the final promise. We're awaiting the fulfillment of the promise for Jesus to return, to make all things new, to usher in the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more sorrow And no more pain. And many of us today and countless others throughout history have said, you know, Lord, today would be great. Like, let's you know what? Let's just call it. Let's make this happen. Right. We're living in that tension. But understand, God is never late. God is never early. God is never caught off guard. God never says, oh, wow, I did not see that coming. That, wow, you talk about a plot twist. Oh boy, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to make some adjustments here. God never says that. We say that. He does not. God is still on the throne. And because that is true, He can say to Habakkuk, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Will God work out His plans without delay? Yes, He will. Will it sometimes seem like He is delaying from our perspective? Yes. But God is not bound by our limitations. God is not bound by a lack of resources. God is not bound by death. God is not bound by time. God is not bound by any of the things that limit our perspective. He accomplishes his purposes in his timing, and we can count on that. God accomplishes his purposes in his timing, and we can count on that. And then verse 4, God starts to get into the meat of his message to Habakkuk. He says, Behold... His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous will live by faith. 
Here, God is using the first person singular to refer to the entire nation of Babylon. Some scholars think he's also referring specifically to the king of Babylon, but most that I read agree that this is his way of kind of describing the whole nation. He's saying their soul is puffed up within him. It's, it's his way of saying to Habakkuk, hey, listen, I know the Babylonians are the bad guys. Like, don't get it twisted. Even though they're coming in and they're going to they're gonna conquer, like, I get it. Like, they're not the good guys. They've got some issues. And here's what's interesting to me. Next week, as we continue in the series, we're going to get into some of the problems that God has with Babylon, some of the, some of the, the issues that he raises, and it's not going to be very pretty. God, God has some constructive feedback, if you will, for the nation of Babylon. But it's so fascinating to me to see where does God start in his litany of complaints against Babylon. This wicked, violent, economically unjust, false God-worshipping, vengeful people, what does God point out first? Their pride. Their pride. Their soul is puffed up within him. The beginning of their downfall is their pride, their sense of superiority and self-sufficiency. And you and I have to understand that when we get deceived by pride, it throws everything else off course. When we get deceived by pride, it throws everything else off course. See, a proud person says, and they certainly don't say this out loud, but a proud person says, the rules don't apply to me. The rules don't apply to me. And I believe so many of the scandals that we see amongst public figures in our world today, scandals amongst politicians, scandals amongst celebrities in the entertainment industry and everything else. And even I was just reading yesterday morning about the latest megachurch pastor to resign and go down because of morally inappropriate things. I believe the root of so many of those scandals is pride. The root is the subtle belief that the rules don't apply to me anymore. And listen, 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 listen. If you are in leadership that is significant anywhere, leadership in the business world, leadership in the nonprofit world, leadership in ministry, even maybe even leadership in your family, there will come a time where you will be tempted to subtly start to believe that the rules do not apply to you. You may even have people tell you the rules don't apply to you. Or you might think, I can accomplish things through my power rather than doing things the right way. What is that? That is pride. And I am telling you, do not let that take root in your heart. It will destroy you. It will destroy you. It is an infection that is deadly. A proud person says, I have no need for correction. Do you find yourself instantly getting defensive and angry in the face of correction? What is that? It's pride. Do you have trouble admitting your mistakes? Is your first reaction to, oh shoot, that didn't go right, who can we blame? What is that? It's pride. A proud person says, I have no need for God, or I know better than God. A proud person is comfortable with religious lip service, but their heart is not in it. And here's the really wicked thing about pride. Here's the really wicked thing about pride. Pride keeps us in the dark even though everyone else can see it. Pride keeps us in the dark even though everyone else can see it. Because see, for us, we call it something else. I'm not prideful. I just work with a bunch of idiots. Now, you might. But you might also still have some pride issues. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Your pride might be wrecking havoc on your relationships. It might be limiting your leadership. It might be putting a lid on your professional growth. And it might be hardening your heart and you're living in denial because you're calling it something else. 
because you're calling it something else. And if that's you, please allow me to speak some sober words of truth to you. You might be fooling yourself, but you're not fooling God, and you're not fooling the people you love the most. They can see it. They can see it. And whatever you think you're protecting with your pride, it is not worth it. And your heavenly Father who loves you long so much for you to receive His grace, for you to receive His mercy, for you to lead with confidence, but to lead with humility and to banish pride from your heart. If you do that, your relationships will be better, your leadership will be healthier, your heart will be lighter, and your legacy will be purer, and you'll stop hurting people. Banish pride from your heart. God says to Habakkuk, the Babylonians are full of pride, but it is not to be so with you. The righteous will live by faith. And that is a phrase that is quoted on three separate occasions in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 10, Romans chapter 1, and Galatians chapter 3. And in fact, the Talmud, which is sort of the the central text of rabbinic Judaism, the Talmud says that those words, the righteous shall live by faith, those words summarize all of the 613 commands in the Old Testament. That's some pretty lofty language. God, God is saying to Habakkuk, in the dark days that are to come, The righteous are to live trusting that God will ultimately fulfill his promises. What does it mean to live by faith? To live knowing and believing that God will fulfill his promises. In this case, the Babylonians are coming. Destruction is coming. But wickedness will not have the final word. God is saying to Habakkuk, and listen, that's really easy to believe in retrospect, isn't it? Like, we all kind of had experiences where we've been through storms, we've been through trials, and we get to the other side and we say, man, I saw the faithful hand of God guide me through this situation. (laughs) It's a lot harder to do in the moment, right? God, I trust you're going to see me through this storm as like the sideways rain is coming in. That's a lot harder. But that's what God is asking Habakkuk to do. He's saying, listen, I need you to understand that I'm still working in you. I'm still working in and through Israel. I'm going to see you through and my plans will not be stopped. Habakkuk 2.4 is an invitation to trust God in the midst of impossibly challenging circumstances. And it's an invitation to trust him when we have more than a few reasons to doubt his loving care. And we need to understand that the invitation to live by faith is not the invitation to live passively. It does not mean we live passively. It doesn't mean we just sort of throw up our hands and say, well, you know, God works in mysterious ways, so God's going to do what God's going to do, and that's just kind of the end of it. No, that's not true at all. To, To live by faith, first of all, it means to understand your role. It means, at the start, and this might be news to some of you, but it means that it is not your job to run the universe. Like, it's just not. Like, you can let that burden lift from your shoulders as much as you might want to. No, you don't want to. There is one, I mean no disrespect, but there is one who is infinitely more capable than you, who can take on that job. And to live by faith is to let him go about his business of running the universe while we go about our business of faithfully representing him in the world. And that has vast and wide-ranging implications for us living in the 21st century. I believe it starts, I believe it starts beyond knowing our role. 
To live by faith means to look at the cross and to know that our identity is secure. We live in an age where there's so much nervousness. So many people trying to figure out who they are, what makes me important. So many people clamoring for attention and significance. And we can look to the cross and know that we are significant because God says we're significant. We are significant because we are, we are, we are the blood-bought children of God. Our identity is that we are children of God. So because of that, when changing life circumstances come, when job losses come, when personal tragedies come, we walk through those trials with a secure identity. And our witness to the world is we know who we are, we know who we belong to, even in the difficult moments of life. We're deeply loved by God and created for a purpose. To to live by faith is to live out radical kingdom values because of our new identity in Christ. To be people of love and generosity and peacemaking and patience. And to do those things, not because we're trying to earn anything, but if anything, because we have been given so much. And God's heart is that we would receive his generosity and send it out to the world. To live by faith means to lean into the Holy Spirit and to allow the Spirit's work to work itself out in us. To be people of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And listen, we do that not by trying really hard to be those sorts of people. Like, all right, I'm going to be patient today. Here we go. That's not how we do it. We do it by leaning into the Spirit. We do it by paying attention to the Holy Spirit, walking closely with the Holy Spirit and letting the Spirit produce the Spirit's fruit in us. To live by faith means to choose the way of love in a bitter and divided world. To live by faith means to trust that God is at work when we can't see it. To live by faith means to have the audacity to believe in scandalous grace that rescues us at our darkest moments. To live by faith is not to be so heavenly minded that we're so earthly good, that we're of no earthly good, but rather it's to have the promises of heaven held so deeply in our hearts that we're able to do all kinds of earthly good. To live by faith means to look at the world around us, even in the darkest moments, to believe that God is working, to believe that God is still on the throne, His promises are true. He will not lie. And in the end, he will make all things new. So here's what we're going to do for the last five minutes. I have a question for you, and we're going to talk through it. I want to ask you, what has God said that you need to bank on that you might not be able to see around you? What is, what, what is a promise of God? Let me put it a different way. What is a promise of God that you're having a hard time believing that you need to be reminded of this morning? What's a promise of God that you're having a hard time believing that you need to be reminded of this morning? Because listen, I know this to be true. I live in the real world just like you do. Things get dark, life gets hard, and all of a sudden the promises of God are the furthest thing from our mind when God intended those things to be a comfort to our soul. So what I want to do is I want to read through some promises that God gives us. And as you're listening, if just one pings on you and you say, man, yes, I I need to remember that that promise is true. At the end, I'm going to invite any of us that would say that about any one of these promises, I'm going to invite you to stand right where you are in your seat. And it's not going to be like weird or awkward. I'm not going to call you out or anything. It's just a way for us as a community to say, God, we need to be reminded of your promises. And then we're going to close, close ourselves in prayer. So be listening. And if any one of these, you would say, gosh, yes, I need to be reminded of this promise. As I was writing this, I thought, yes, I need to be reminded of these promises. If that's true for you, at the end, I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to pray. Some of us. We simply need to be reminded that God sees us. 
God sees us. Perhaps you felt invisible or neglected. You need to remember the promise that God is at work in your midst. You need to remember the words of Psalm 139, which tell us, You know when I sit and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Think about that. God is acquainted with all your ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. God sees you. God sees you. That's his promise for you. For some of us, we need to be reminded of the promise of our salvation. That John 8, 30, 36 tells us that if who the Son sets free is free indeed. Jesus invites every person of any background to come to Him, to receive His forgiveness, to receive His grace, to be made new by His Spirit. And when Jesus saves, He saves completely. When Jesus saves, He saves completely. It's amazing to me how many people I talk to who have been walking with the Lord for a long time and begin to doubt their salvation because of circumstances in their life. I'm telling you, Jesus isn't saying, well, I had you saved up until Tuesday, but then what you did on Thursday, yee. Does God through the Holy Spirit want us to be holy people? Yes, He does. Does He want to want to burn away that which is which is, is impure and dishonoring to Him? Yes, He does. But there is grace for us in our stumbles, and we need to be reminded of the reality of our salvation. That there is forgiveness and there is grace for us. Some of us, we need to be reminded that the Holy Spirit is working in us. If you're anything like me, you know that to be true intellectually, but you can kind of forget it functionally. That if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you. That is really true. The Spirit empowers you to live in intimacy with God. The Spirit has gifted you uniquely to be a part of His work in the world. For some of us, we need to, rem- need to remember simply that God hears our prayers. That God hears our prayers. I think, again, we've all been there. I certainly have. But we're like, God, are you, are you listening? Am I talking to the walls? Like, what's, what's going on here? Are you listening? And we need to be reminded that just as God listened to Habakkuk, God listens to us. God sees you. God hears you. God takes your prayers seriously. Jesus repeatedly and in different ways tells us to bring our requests to God again and again and again. And he says, our father delights to hear from us. His answers might be yes. His answers might be no. His answers might be, well, it's complicated. (laughs) But he hears us and takes us seriously. And finally, for some of us, we simply need to be reminded of the reality that Jesus is coming back. That this world is not all that we see. He told his disciples, I go and prepare a place for you. And the promise of scripture is that he will return and that the new heavens and new earth will be ushered in and he will wipe away every tear and there will be no more sorrow, no more pain. He will make all things new. And just like I said a moment ago, that is not a reason to live passively. That is not a reason to believe that this world does not matter. If anything, the opposite is true. Because Jesus is coming back, we can live with purpose and we can live with passion. We can live as his ambassadors because Jesus is coming back. Every single moment has been infused with meaning because Jesus is coming back. In the time until that comes, we have the opportunity to represent him in the world, to be vessels of his love and his grace and his mercy to a world that so desperately needs those things. Because Jesus is coming back every moment is infused with meaning. So as you listen to those, if any of those just sort of pinged with you saying, you know, I need, I know that intellectually, but I needed to be reminded of that functionally 
this morning. I want to just invite you to stand. I want to invite you to stand up, and we're going to, again, it's not going to be weird or awkward. I'm just going to pray for all of us. And this is our way as a community of just saying, God, we're here, and we want to remember that your promises are true. So let's pray together. God, we thank you that your promises are indeed true. God, we we are so often full of doubt and unbelief and the world gets the best of us and we get deceived and our minds get sidetracked, but we want to reaffirm this morning that we believe and we know that that your promises are true. God, some of us simply need to be reminded that you see us. Some of us feel alone and neglected, and I pray in Jesus' name that those of us in that place would leave here with a fresh sense of your presence. God, some of us need, you have gifted us for ministry, you have gifted us for service in the kingdom of God, you have gifted us to use our gifts to be a blessing to others, and we've forgotten that. Life has beaten us up. God, I pray in Jesus' name for a fresh anointing and a fresh sense of your gifting. God, some of us are living in doubt of our salvation. We've walked with you for a long time. But the circumstances of our lives have caused us to doubt. Are you really there? Do you really love us? Jesus, remind us again of your sacrifice on the cross. Remind us again that when God looks at us, he does not see our sin, but he sees you in your sinless perfection. Jesus, some of us have just gotten into the rhythms of life and have kind of functionally forgotten that you're coming back, and we need to remember that. We need to remember that because you're coming back, that these days are not meaningless and pointless, but rather these days are infused with great meaning as you've called us to live live as your ambassadors. So God, for all of us, may we be people who remember your promises. Holy Spirit, may your voice, the voice of the promises of God, be loud in our ears, in our hearts, in our heads, so that we might be people who live with radical hope. Because you, God, are on the throne. You are ruling and reigning, and we can trust in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.